0: I'm here with Siddhartha Mukherjee. Sid, thanks for joining me again on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me.
0: So you've been here twice before we spoke about both of your fantastic tomes, The Emperor of All Maladies, which is really the definitive book on cancer in our lifetime. Just an amazing book. And also The Gene, which was also amazing. And we, we, so we've spoken about both of those books at length, on the podcast, I, I recommend anyone interested in those broader topics consult those previous conversations. But today, I, I just want to um, I want to talk to you about the COVID pandemic in general, and and just get your kind of expert eye view of what has been happening here these long now five months in the U.S. that we've been dealing with this, I think, ineptly by any objective. Criterion, you know, our ineptitude is fairly well established here. So, um, and I'll just I'll remind people who may not know it, you you are you are a famous oncologist and also writer, but your background is in virology. So, you actually have a wheelhouse that is relevant to our, our current concerns. So, just to to start off here, and we can go anywhere you want to go, Sid. But what has been your experience? watching this all play out and watching in particular watching the spread of misinformation and just the way in which it's been given top spin by political cynicism in many cases and also just in the beginning there was a fair amount of you know actually good faith uncertainty about the biology and epidemiology of covid and so it's it really has been hard to draw the line at various points between a valid contrarian opinion and a dangerously irresponsible one. And that, you know, granted that that line is probably getting clearer. But what's it been like for you these last five months watching this unfold?
1: So I think there are several threads in that conversation that I want to break apart because they're quite different. So I want to make a a very clear distinction between the uncertainties of which there are many and the ineptitudes of which there are many. So we can talk about them separately because those are important. And there's gray zones in all those cases. So let's first talk about what went wrong and what could have not gone wrong in the United States and around the world. Well, before that, let's uh, talk a little bit about why this particular virus of all viruses has the capacity to cause a pandemic. And the answer lies in the biology of the virus there are two features or three features of the virus that make it particularly a pandemic-causing virus. That obviously is, uh, is not true for, for many viruses. One is that it's completely new. We have never encountered it before, as far as we know. And so, therefore, humans are immunologically naive to, to the virus. That's one. The second thing, and now we're getting to really important things, is the fact that the virus has a high degree of high capacity to spread Biologists virologists uh, use one measure of this, a measure called R0, which is the, a measure of, of how many people one person infects. And obviously, mathematically speaking, if that number is above one, then the infection will spread exponentially. So some viruses have huge numbers. Measles is a very, very highly infectious virus. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 sits actually in, in, the, in the higher range. It's hard to estimate exactly what that number is because it varies depending on the population and the behavior of the population, but it's got a high number. And the third feature, which is actually probably the, the one that we realized very late and perhaps too late in the game and is the most insidious feature, is that asymptomatic people, people with absolutely no symptoms, hmm. seem to, seem to be able to carry the virus and spread the virus. Now, that's a big distinction that is not true, for instance, for Ebola uh, or other very lethal viruses. When you, when you have symptoms, you usually then become trans, a transmitter. But it's true for this virus that you, we might be familiar with other viruses that it's true for. HIV also, is, it's true for HIV. You can have, be completely asymptomatic, but still transmit the virus. You can have virus in your blood and transmit the virus. These viruses that have this capacity to have asymptomatic transmission are particularly difficult because you cannot simply find people by symptoms alone. You have to find them by testing. And, and, and if you want to contain the virus using public health strategies, such as containment or quarantine or isolation, you have to essentially find them. You have to go and find them. They will not find you because mm-hmm. they don't know whether they, whether they, by you I mean a medical doctor or a medical system, and that's because they don't know if they're carriers, asymptomatic carriers, or they're really having the, have the virus. Yeah. So, so, so that covers the territory of why this virus, of all viruses, has and had the capacity to start a global pandemic. So this brings us to the next piece of conversation, which is the conversation about ineptitudes. So very important to remember that the ineptitudes started right from day zero in Wuhan China we should have known about this virus b- long before we actually did as a global community they we several attempts to by chinese doctors in full good faith to communicate the urgency of what was going on in china were essentially blocked uh, we think or we now know to some extent and in fact as you very well know the uh, the ophthalmologist uh, who sounded the alarm on the virus was uh, essentially censored. And unfortunately, as you also know, he died of that viral infection. We'll come back yeah. to that. We'll come back to that in a second. Uh, it's very important because that tells us something about the virus, I think. So that's where the ineptitude started. Uh, I, I, say, I would say that's a global ineptitude. That is also, I mean, people have conspiracy theories around it. I don't know what to believe and what not to believe because the investigation has not really proceeded. The Chinese government has been extremely reluctant to share many crucial pieces of information around that first, hmm. you know, those first few days.
0: Are you referring to the speculation that this came from a, a lab as opposed to a wet market? Or what, what conspiracy are you thinking about?
1: So um, so many. So hmm. one is that I think we still don't know the origin of the virus. I think that there was an, there is an interview in Science Magazine from one of the workers who cultivates coronavirus in the wuhan coronavirus facility and she's adamant that it did not come from the lab but the you know the question is that lab has not been appropriate, you know that incident has not been fully investigated i just don't know i do not think that it was an inten- i don't think it was a bioterror weapon for instance right. nor do i think that that it was a intentional infection of someone right but i do think that we need to investigate and find out Where the virus came from, and perhaps even track back the very first index case, which is usually possible if we have access to full free information, which we do not at this point of time.
0: Just to linger there for a second, Sid, does it actually matter? You know, within a very short period, we had the full sequence of the virus, and we are now dealing with the basics of vaccine design and treatment design, and you know, epidemiology. Does it really matter what the origin moment was?
1: it matters for future pandemics um, and sure. it matters for future surveillance. One of the things that, you know, we have to learn from this and never let it happen again. And doubtless, there are hundreds of thousands of viruses, xenoviruses that lurk in bats and other animals, particularly social animals. I mean, one question is, you know, why bats seem to carry so many viruses? It's because they're, you know, they're very social and they live in very dense populations in, in environments. So, so it matters for the next pandemic because we cannot let this happen again. But moving to the United States, the ineptitudes or the the, the I would say the, the the glaring errors began also very quickly and began from the start. So one error that began from the start was that obviously it was the the first response here was oh it's going to go away. It's not going to come. It's it's going to go away. That's obviously now not been the case, but that was a, a completely misplaced response. It was not going to go away. The first index case was seen at the end of January in Seattle, okay. and that should, the, that should have been an immediate call for urgent action because, because we knew, as I said, that this was a xenovirus. It had a rapid spread, and we knew by that time there was enough suspicion in the virological community that, that there were asymptomatic spreaders. It wasn't definitive. But as soon as that suspicion is raised, you need to start acting on it. So we're we're at the end of January. We're in a small hospital uh, outside Seattle. The first index case walks in. That should have sounded a major alarm to the CDC and a major alarm to you know every health authority, saying there is the virus has now entered the United States and we should do something about it. The second major, I would say, glaring error, which should never be repeated, was probably the biggest of them all. And that is, once the virus was in the United States, there was no test for the virus for about 40 days. So there was no FDA-approved test for the virus mm. for 40 full days. I cannot emphasize as an immunologist or a virologist that, that, is, that, that, that is a, it is inconceivable that that would happen. But for 40 full days, there was no test for it. And that was partly because the, the CDC tried to make a test. And the test, the first batch of the test worked. I interviewed virtually everyone I could. And there's a big piece that I wrote in The New Yorker about this. The CDC made a test. It was actually, in the end, it was a good test. But uh, when they expanded the batches of the test and sent it out, sent it out, to the public health services, uh, which is where these tests are usually then monitored, the test failed to work. One probe, one of the uh, pieces of the test, didn't, you know, kept showing up with uh, false positives, which meant the entire test was, uh, was uh, not reliable. Now, in that meantime, in that same period of time, so as the clock is ticking now, day one, day two, day three, several academic investigators, including Folks like Alex Greninger at the University of Washington, who I interviewed for the uh, piece in the New Yorker, and I, you know, have had a long communication with. Alex Greninger had by himself uh, in his lab developed a test for the virus, but that test had to be, in order to be used, it had to be licensed by the FDA mm. and, the C- and the CDC. Now, the FDA and the CDC, you know, we have a, a we have something. Which allows such licensing to proceed very quickly, which is called the emergency use authorization (EUA). And if you speak to the FDA and the CDC, they they will tell you that oh God, you know, oh gosh, our EUA was working fine. Uh, we were just waiting for our tests to be corrected. If you ask people in, in the private laboratories, they will say just the opposite. They will say, well, we applied for the EUA, but it took. By the time it turned around, you know, it was already too late.
0: And I think you describe and i think this was in your new yorker piece you describe doctors spending nearly 100 hours filling out forms to get permission to test and these forms couldn't even be emailed right they had to be snail mailed to the fda and it just sounds like the infrastructure over there is a generation old
1: so the uh, i spoke with the fda and i spoke with the cdc the FDA says that it was a parallel infrastructure, that you had to do a snail mail, but they would also accept emails. Mm. That's what the FDA says. And it also says that, and it maintains that they were processing these as fast as they could. The in laboratory investigators say that that's not the case, that in fact, the snail mail slowed them down one problem of course you have to realize that there was an intrinsic problem at this point of time which is that no one had samples so in order to validate a test you mm. need samples to validate a test but if you have only it's it's a it's a perfectly circular argument so in other words if you don't have a test that works you, you don't know who to validate it on because you don't know who's infected and how can you prove that a test works if you don't have samples to validate it on do you see what i mean yeah. So it's a, it's a perfectly... Inver- I mean, we really need to learn about these pieces of logic or these, you know, these sort of failures, some of which are, I would say, some of which are intentional, some of which are non-intentional. But it's, this is a perfect example, and it could be applied in, to any business. It could be applied to any medicine. If, you, if, if asymptomatic individuals can carry the virus, which happens to be in this case, then how do you get, you know, 20 people? What's, what's the, what, what is the, was it a positive, what does a, how do you test whether the test works or not? You can't right. because you don't have samples to test it on. Anyway, in any case, by, you know, 15, 20 days in, Greninger and others had scrambled together enough material from various sources to be able to test, uh, to show that their test worked. And, and eventually, of course, the FDA CDC test also began to work there, There was a faulty reagent that was corrected. But by all of this time, you know, 40-odd days had passed, 30-odd days had passed, for the most part. I mean, of course, there was testing going on as well, but about, and that's a critical period of time because that is when the infection was spreading. And we don't even know what happened in those 30 to 40 days. We don't know how many people flew from Seattle to, for instance, Mm -hmm. New York and New Jersey. We don't know how many people came in from, there was no travel ban, remember, on Europe. So that is mistake number two. So we just, just, we just went through mistake number one, which was the absence of testing. Mistake number two was to dismiss the idea or was to say this is a Chinese problem, this is a problem that is in China, and not recognize the fact that the slopes of infection rates were climbing rapidly in Europe, in Italy and Spain. So during the time that we had no test, there was a rap there were people coming in and going out of major cities new york being probably the major epicenter and there are several genetic clues that clearly suggest that the that the infection in new york at least was primarily seeded by european travel and not by not travel from asia right the infection in europe was seeded in turn from, from Asian uh, travelers who came into Italy and Spain. But the infection in, the, in New York, we have genetic evidence to suggest that it was from people who came in from Europe. So, not putting in a travel ban, testing ban, or even a quarantine and isolation during that period of time when we didn't have tests is a crucial error. And, and that was error two. I should say that just backtracking a little bit, I should add that the the FDA and the CDC have had a long history of working, with, of working with public health laboratories, but they have had actually not a very long history of working with private academic laboratories, so like the University of Washington or like Columbia University, etc. So that is in some ways error number three, because if the FDA had had a well-established track of or a, if they had vetted and pre-authorized, as countries like South Korea and other places did, some academic laboratories as being good enough or of high enough caliber, that if they were to apply f- for a test, a successful test, that the FDA would say, okay, ours doesn't seem to be working, we'll take yours until ours gets to work. That infrastructure was present in the, within the FDA, but present in a very infant form. That's what, the academic laboratory folks told me, so academic pathologists told me, the FDA says that that's not true. And so the question is when we perform the autopsy, one of, these, one of these two things is correct. We don't know which one it is. Either the FDA has had a, a long tradition and it's quite smooth and, and streamlined their capacity to work with academic laboratories, pathology lab, laboratories like Greninger's and Columbia's and, and New York uh, hospitals or it is in fact was not streamlined and had to be streamlined in a kind of emergency setting so so now we keep moving the clock keeps ticking forward so now we have people from Europe traveling into the United States carrying virus symptomatic asymptomatic we don't know there is nothing going on in the borders except for originally as you very well know a ban against chinese travel but of course that was not that was not where the leak came from and they're coming into new york and they are spreading the virus asymptomatically because there's, and we don't even know where they're going, what they're doing, where they're spreading the virus, and we don't even know how many because the test is still lacking. So move the clock forward a little bit forward again. Forward, actually, actually,
0: before we advance, yeah. I'm wondering, let, let's just linger on, on the testing piece for a second. So what ensures that we learn the right lessons here? It seems to me that some lessons seem genuinely hard to learn because in normal times you would view this this sluggishness from the FDA and the CDC as a feature not a bug in that i mean we obviously it's got to be motivated to some degree by wanting to ensure quality control you you don't want to just approve labs all over the place to get their competing tests to scale and i got to think the status quo was motivated to some degree by an awareness that there's a trade-off between safety and speed in situations That's like right. this.
1: That's so, so you're absolutely correct. I mean, you know, we, the last thing we want is a, is a trigger-happy FDA or a trigger-happy CDC, so that we, we certainly don't want that. But what we do want is a CDC and the FDA and an FDA that is able to respond to pandemic situations in a different way that it, than it responds to the approval of any drug or test in normal circumstances. So there has to be some kind of hysteresis or some kind of space, as it were, hmm. a dial-up, dial dial-down system in which you, know, you can dial up or dial down the responsiveness based on the situation. One way that I proposed in the New Yorker piece and subsequent pieces, I'm on several, several panels that have to do with COVID response and what we learned from the COVID response. But one way is to do exactly what I told you, which is to do some kind of pre-authorization so that the FDA would have, rather than waiting to receive applications in the setting where their own test was not working, to go and seek out people that they have already vetted right. and ask them, uh, you know, can you help us figure out a, at least an interim test, we will validate that test and at least launch that while we wait for our test to come and working. So that would be that would have been one kind of solution. And this pre-authorization process or pre-vetting process could be quite stringent. You know, you don't. You know, you, the FDA has lots of time in between pandemics to ensure that you know the University of Washington is not just you know out to make a fast buck and that they you know their PCR machines and their cap- this is their you know what their capabilities are. How many tests can they do per day? How many? What is the reliability of their testing st- infrastructure? Can they report out those tests, et cetera, et cetera, so that rather than waiting and, and being, being passive, the FDA would have been, or the CDC and the FDA would have been active during this process. So that's one thing that one can learn. You don't want a trigger-happy FDA, but you do want an FDA that is prepared to what I would call dial up and dial down in the circumstances of a pandemic.
0: Yeah. Yeah, okay, so take me to the border where we now have people pouring in from Europe, many under the increased load precipitated by the the sudden announcement that if you don't get in in the next 15 hours or whatever it was, you're not getting in. So we just had people flooding the airports of Europe trying to catch the next plane out, obviously breathing heavily on one another all the while. How do you perceive that moment?
1: So So we're 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 then now in a situation where, as I said, in New York City, we don't have testing, we don't know what's happening here. And what is happening in Europe is just the opposite. So what is happening in Europe is that everyone is reacting to the situation in Europe and they are getting on planes and jumping on planes and and essentially coming as soon as they can. They're arriving into New York City. And New York City very, very soon is full of people from Europe who are trying to catch the next flight back. And we have no quarantine for them. We have no isolation for them. We have no contact tracing for them. And there is no way to know how long they will stay, whether they are tourists, whether they are locals returning back. It's just mayhem. So that's, that brings us, you know, the clock now ticks and we are now back in, we are now sort of 60 days 50 to 60 days and we're beginning to see the uptick in new york infection rates by now so clearly this is a signal that's a problem there's a you know there's a surge or the beginning of the surge and that's usually when a usually when we start to do things like quarantining and now things you know isolation contact tracing and masking becomes important so at this stage, what's important is to have one clear, consistent message saying, we're just beginning to test. We don't know if people have been quarantined or not. We don't know if people have been isolated or not. We're just beginning to test. But the first thing you should do is start social distancing, You know, avoid crowded situations, etc. But, but most importantly, we don't know, and we'll come back to this point in a second, Sam, we don't know if masks work or not but they have historically worked against other respiratory viruses so if you're symptomatic wear a mask and particularly if you're a frontline healthcare worker wear a mask and wear probably wear full PPE because that's what we learned from the from the Chinese that it's a highly contagious virus and essentially the CDC vacillates on masks first it says nope not required and we've spent a lot of time
0: said it was even worse than that I, I don't know if this was the cdc or the world health organization or both but someone at that point i think clearly concerned that there was going to be a a you know a run on ppe and therefore not enough for frontline workers there was messaging around masks not only maybe not working but being counterproductive that you'd be more likely to be touching your face you're more likely to get sick perhaps by wearing a mask so people were actively discouraged at one point from wearing masks
1: that's exactly right and the surgeon general at that point in time also said that masks were not required and the the logic that i i've heard is that it's it was because you know people were saying that it wouldn't you know, that there wasn't that there'd be a run on ppe personal protective equipment and that doctors would be would therefore not be able to get get any but that doesn't, that obviously the public, to the public, that makes no sense. How can, yeah,
0: exactly. how can,
1: how can, it, how can it work for doctors but not work for you? It just, just, doesn't, make, right. it doesn't, it does, just doesn't make any sense. And so, so we then go through this moment in which we don't know if masks work or not. And you can't test it experimentally, right? You can't give people coronavirus and say, you know, either half wear masks or half don't wear masks and, and see. And remember, masks work both ways based on a whole bunch of experience with respiratory viruses they protect a spreader from spreading and they protect an uninfected person from getting virus from getting the virus so so we don't know and we're in this kind of limbo around masking and so what's happening in the hospitals meanwhile is just really terrifying in new york hospitals because they also don't have enough protective gear so they don't have enough N95 masks the kind of mask that really is fitted and you know lets through only a very small fraction of of respiratory particles these are not that heavy duties they are not you know they're not they're not that fancy they cost less than a dollar typically but hospitals are running out of masks and the emergency rooms and the hospitals are becoming progressively crowded with people who have symptoms. So there is a complete breakdown of communication between all the folks concerned about what what is happening. The hospitals are getting crowded. The doctors are and nurses, and I should say especially the nurses, don't have equipment to protect themselves. So they're cobbling together whatever they can get. Some hospitals have N ninety five masks, some don't. They're cobbling together whatever they can get and they're trying to move forward. But really it's an emergency situation many doctors are getting exposed. And as you know, some people are going to the ICU because they don't have, some patients are going to the ICU because they're beginning to develop these severe complications of COVID. So that is where sort of all of a sudden we are in the middle of, we're now in the mid, in, in mid-pandemic, and, and people, many people start obviously having, having severe problems. The second thing that happens at this stage, which is another mistake, is that some people get discharged from the hospital after being tested and they are asked to return to nursing homes Mm. where also they don't have PPE and nor do they actually have any real equipment to protect the workers or protect residents from each other. So we have a situation in which people are basically going back And these nursing homes become petri dishes because the virus then goes and infects, you know, via nursing home workers, healthcare workers, or through direct contact, people who are elderly and who are the most vulnerable. And this cycle begins to repeat itself. So you go to the emergency room because you feel sick. Uh, You aren't sick enough that they would admit you to the emergency room. There is no quarantine in place. There's no isolation in place. There's no contact tracing in place. Some of those people are sent back to their, you know, rehab facilities, nursing homes, et cetera, because they aren't sick enough to be in the hospital because the hospital beds are too full. And they go and and they become new sort of sources of infection at the nursing homes themselves. Meanwhile, the government is saying publicly, don't wear masks. Uh, You know, we have a federal system, as you know, which is a which is a problem in a pandemic. We'll come back to that in a second. It's it's the governor's individual decision about what to do, whether to isolate, whether to quarantine, whether to close schools. New York ultimately closes schools, in my opinion, late, too late, two weeks too late, perhaps. And then uh, by then, it is it is too late in this city, at least, to do anything.
0: So from that moment forward, I mean, I know New York became its own version of Italy, and so many things happened from the public perception side of this that are just frankly bizarre. I mean, the fact that we were sitting here watching, I mean, I guess it's understandable to hear that, you know, there's a flu in Wuhan, and who knows if it's going to get here, but, you know, once it's starting to get here, and once we see what's happening in Italy, our lassitude seems fairly inexplicable from my point of view, but even if you could explain that somehow psychologically, that this Intuition that never really had to be stated, that might be some law of nature that would prevent this thing from spreading to you know every corner of the earth and every inch of our society if we just sat there and did nothing about it. Once it hit New York and New York became you know fairly similar to Lombardy, you still saw a country that was incredibly slow to respond, I mean, with some exceptions, California. Uh, responded pretty quickly but even the places that have responded even you know even california and went through a significant lockdown it still was a a fairly piecemeal effort and you know all the while undermined by our basic failure to get any of these necessary ingredients of a response to scale I mean testing tracing PPE took a long time. I don't even know if PPE is in danger of running out now. How do you explain this general picture of, forget our initial missteps, once we understand the gravity of the problem, how do you explain our failure to get up to speed and to perform the way you'd expect the leading technical and medical power on earth to perform?
1: Well, there's several explanations, Sam, and you've identified most of the problems right off the bat. One explanation is that in this federal system, or really in, in, in a system where governors have independent choices and decisions to make and have full authority or large authority, unless you have a system in which under emergency, a task force takes over and tells people exactly what to do, then things begin to fall apart. So what happens in in this particular situation is that states, you know, essentially have or use their own metrics, their own decisions, and they're quite wildly different. So California and New York, New York is in the mid-pandemic, California reacts early, and many places impose lockdowns. But in general, these lockdowns are not really severe or compliant. So Businesses are locked down, which of course causes great economic loss. But people are still wandering the streets. There, there is no systematic lockdown, and that's the opposite of what 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 you want, right? So you want business to businesses obviously to remain open as long as you can, and you want people hmm. to stay in their homes and be tested and be contact traced. But in many places we've seen in the United States, just the opposite happens. Businesses have to comply for lots of reasons, including the fact that they're you know they have to protect their employees. But people are not compliant. You remember in Spain and Italy and many other countries, you know, there was really a quasi-military intervention to prevent people from from entering the streets. You know, if you went to the streets, a police officer would come up to you or a military officer would come up to you and say, what are you doing and why are you out of your house? That was the state of lockdown, which is a real lockdown. A quasi-lockdown is worse because it hurts the businesses and it doesn't prevent the spread in people. And unfortunately, in many cases, there was a quasi-lockdown. Masking was not mandatory. In New York, we quickly made masking mandatory. And I'm, I suppose I'm proud to say that's one of the, one of, one of the things that, that I and others pushed very early on, saying that, yes, we'll never have the final evidence, uh, and maybe we won't get it in, in time. But from lots and lots of respiratory viruses, we know that social distancing and mask wearing does reduce viral load does reduce viral transmission especially if both the infected and the infectee or the naive if both of them wear it you get a, a a double effect and potentially a synergistic effect so so what you have in the united states is this kind of bizarre crisis in which there is you know a, a, what i what i would call a quasi lockdown with enough leak through that in fact as soon as the lockdown is opened in some places the virus starts spreading again. Now, in New York, the lockdown was very strongly enforced. And to some extent, we saw the worst of things. We saw the worst of the pandemic, a huge number of cases uh, and a huge number of deaths. But then once the lockdown was in place, there it was quite a lot of compliance. There's a high degree of compliance in New York and New York State on masking. There's a high degree of compliance on social distancing. And New York opened in pha- is still going through phases, but New York opened in phases. And that's important because when you didn't open in phases, what we've seen in other places, when you went from lockdown to complete open situation, what happened is, is we've seen that once again, the curve of, of not just infected cases, but deaths ha- has begun to rise again. It's very important here. These are lessons that we've learned actually from cancer and from other diseases, it's very important to count deaths because deaths mm. are not sensitive to testing. You know, if you increase testing, you'll detect more people. Right. Deaths, are not, deaths are not sensitive to testing. Deaths are an absolute value. And I would urge anyone who's listening or reading to this to, to you know, you can just, it's very easy to Google. You can just Google uh, US COVID deaths and you'll see exactly the whole story laid out in front of you. You'll see the rise, which is mostly in New York, New Jersey, et cetera, rise the lockdown, and then you'll see a second rise. And that is, of course, in states such as Arizona, Southern California, especially more than Northern California, and other states, Texas.
0: Except, uh, Sid, even here, there's been room for doubt and conspiracy theories, right? So there, even fairly prominent people have come forward saying that the death statistics are completely false because hospitals have been incentivized to more or less presume or assert covid as the cause of death even when you know someone is you know stage 4 pancreatic cancer and you know had a you know a week to live anyway or they didn't even test them they had a fever and that's compatible with a covid diagnosis and you ha- you've had people again you know you've had obvious crackpots and lunatics saying this but then you've had extremely prominent people who don't have any expertise here, you know people like Elon Musk, you know out on social media saying these things. So can you put this particular concern to rest that our fatality statistics can't be remotely trusted?
1: Um, yes, I can or partly can. I can do it from two angles. One is from our own hospital, from the New York experience, I know from people from 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 my patients at least. No one, no one that I know was incorrectly marked as dead from COVID when they actually were dying or dead from something else. So that's anecdotal. But more than anecdotal, actually, we have numerical evidence of this being true. And that is the fact that the case fatality rate of, for COVID, which is the number of people who die upon getting infected, has really hovered across the world around 0.7%. You know, a little bit higher, a little bit lower, and obviously it depends on age groups. You know, so if you're in the in the worst category of of the the most susceptible category to death, it would rise to you know five, six, seven. This is these are elderly people or having comorbid conditions. But if you look overall, the the pattern of is you know the numbers you know end up being in the 0.7 to 08 percent range. And when we were doing adequate testing, we have now slowed down in the United States because now the test is, you can't get a test. You know, f- the test turnaround time has now gone up again to about seven to eight days. But when we were doing adequate testing and appropriate testing, the mortality rate was tracking that number, 0. 0.7, 0. 0.8, one percent. You know, mm-hmm. It wasn't tenfold higher, onefold lower. So if right. you just use simple math, it will tell you that the simple math would tell you that that as long as the deaths don't go a log fold, let's say, or tenfold higher or lower than what has been seen all around the world, then then the the deaths are real. Now, of course, these people have pre-morbid conditions or comorbid conditions, and yes, of course, I mean some of them may have indeed have had other reasons to be susceptible and, and to die, and maybe they had pre-morbid conditions that were quite severe. But again, pure mathematical reasoning will tell you that that it can't be, even if there is a conspiracy, that it can't be such a large conspiracy to completely distort the re- distort reality. Mm. Am, am I making any sense? I, am, I, am I making sense?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that makes sense. So how do you explain the fact that even at this late stage, we seem to be losing ground on testing? I mean, again, the, the picture is one of an erstwhile medical and technical superpower struggling to produce you know, everything down to cotton swabs. Why are we not testing and tracing like a supercharged South Korea at this point?
1: Well, that's partly because we don't have all the equipment to do that. And we didn't, you know, we have, unfortunately, and again, I would refer back to the piece I wrote in The New Yorker, there's a very there's a very important interview there of one of the people who makes N95 masks as an example and basically his business this is a guy named Mike Bowen his business of making N95 masks couldn't survive because he was constantly getting out competed by by the chinese and because of cost cutting and because of of efficiency in hospitals their business uh, was unable to survive and so we became progressively dependent on other countries including china in particular to produce valuable reagents which are important in in the medical process so uh, we have a situation in which all of a sudden one reagent isn't is for a test isn't available and the whole tests testing system breaks down and that's what we've seen again so mm-hmm. so one thing that has become very clear is that supercharged as you are, you may be supercharged on efficiency, but you are not, in this case, supercharged on on resilience. And you need both. You need to be supercharged on efficiency, and that's great. But when things are in short supply, you need to have stockpiles, which are not efficient. You need to have a backup system, which is not efficient. You may need to have, again, you may need to have manufacturers, local manufacturers, not beholden to Chinese Goods or to goods from any other country. I don't want to blame one country or over another in this particular situation, but not beholden to any particular country in which you are essentially so beholden to to some good from that country that you can that that if if that part fails, you know you can no longer work, and that's been that's been the case in in our situation.
0: Mm. Now, how have you perceived the role of public health communication here? I mean, I thinking in particular about Robert Redfield, who's heading the CDC, and Deborah Burks, who was heading the task force, you know, Pence's task force on, on corona, and I guess, uh, you know, Anthony Fauci as well. These have been the most, to my eye, the most public medical voices. And to varying degrees, I mean, most of their public statements have seemed, you know, fairly constrained and even, you know, abject attempts to simply avoid embarrassing President Trump. They're walking a line which really, in many cases, can't coherently be walked, you know, around his misstatements in their efforts to communicate public health information. And again, to varying degrees, I, mean, I would say Fauci has escaped comparatively unscathed. But I mean, both Burks. And Redfield again. I mean, I, I mean, forgive me if these are friends of yours, and and I now seem to be disparaging them. But they, they...
1: No, I know <laughs> they... Fauci very, uh, I know Fauci very well. I don't know Deborah or or Doctor Brooks, I should say, and nor nor any of the other folks. Right. In that,
0: this is now getting to be a very old story where you have people who have real reputations and who have accomplished a lot in their lives, right? Whether it's in business or the military, or in this case, medicine, who i can only assume have reputations for integrity and probity and just a host of virtues that are worth protecting and they undergo this horrible transformation in proximity to trump i mean it's almost a visible diminishing of their integrity just standing next to the man i mean it's like radiation poisoning every second they spend standing too close to the reactor core you can see them withering and so I mean, for Burks and, and Redfield, this has been fairly painful to watch when they're at the podium trying to make sense and say something responsible in the wake of whatever insane bloviation just came out of the president. And Fauci has had to navigate that same space as well, and the result has been a pretty just you know, frankly ineffectual communication about the public health imperatives of the moment. I mean, that's just been you know my experience. Watching CNN whenever I, I happen to catch these press conferences, which happen less and less. What has been your perception of this?
1: I mean, I think uh, you know of the people there. I know Tony Fauci the best, and I've uh, worked with uh, Tony on various things before. Uh, I think that the it's been it's been quite clear that he's had really a task that a completely unenviable task. He's mm-hmm. had a task that that I, I just don't know how you could possibly navigate. Given the situation and given the problems that have arisen, so I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if you you can't keep saying in the same press conference, you can't keep saying completely contradictory things at the same time.
0: Well, so there are many other things that I mean you've written about here, and which this pandemic has exposed. I mean, just the basic inadequacy of our of our medical system. I mean, both to respond. Resiliently to a shock like this, but also just the background facts of how we're failing to keep our house in order. I mean, just to read the account that you give of the digitization of our medical records, just what a missed opportunity that has been. That it's really, you know, this is something that, you know, mere consumers of medicine like myself have been slow to appreciate, but our electronic medical records are not functioning the way you would expect in terms of data sharing and information retrieval. There, there really are, they're a, a mechanism meant to make billing easier. And it's not really about improving science, much less treatment. What lessons are you drawing from this experience here and how we should attempt to reboot ourselves and, and be better placed to respond to something like this, or just to care for ourselves going forward? And I mean, I, I would also just point out the obvious fact that while we're still grappling with COVID and we're not, there's really no end in sight here, I want to talk to you about your expectations of just, you know, what the next, you know, six months and year look like. But there's just no guarantee that we're not going to see another pandemic unleashed on us next week. It's nowhere written that Mother Nature can only hit us with one pandemic at a time. So
1: absolutely, there's a flu coming and we don't know what kind of flu it is, right? Well, so just let's just talk a second. Yeah. Well, let's just talk for a second. I mean, we, we you covered two topics. One is the electronic medical record, and the big problem there is that first we have just accepted the lack of interoperability in that medical record. the The field is dominated by two to three players: Epic, Cerner, and then there's a third, you know, Allscripts, and a couple of other smaller players, and all of this, and they have dominated the field and have not really allowed for any interoperability. And in fact, there's been no demand for interoperability. This is mm-hmm. a, something that the public should have demanded right up front, saying that you don't get to play in the EMR field without interoperability. So that is, that is you know, one thing that I think I would emphasize on the e- EMR or electronic medical record situation. The, the second question you asked is, you know, what, what about the next pandemic? So it seems to me that that what needs to happen is a kind of kind of autopsy of all of this. We cannot let this go without having an autopsy how the 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 most one of the most or perhaps the most technologically advanced nation in the world really failed to control a pandemic and will eventually probably have 200,000 deaths. I mean as I we went through all the missteps and all the problems but we but really you know we've had 200,000, we will end up with uh, you know on the order, order of 200,000 deaths. And so I think the the w- w- I mean I think there is no you know it is a it is a litany of broken forces and the broken forces keep going on and on and on and so none of them is singularly responsible. And so all of them will have to be rehauled. I mean uh, I mean I'm, and again in the in the piece in The New Yorker, I try to identify, each one of them separately, so the you know supply chain and efficiency system, which doesn't work in a pandemic situation, needs to be relooked at. You know why can't we get tests turned around in one to two days? The CDC and the FDA and their collaboration with academic pathology laboratories has to be looked at because again the question is why can't we get a test turned around in one day to two days? The obviously the government the presidency. And the federal system that allows governors to make decisions needs to be looked at. The fact that there is no single messaging around masks needs to be looked at. I mean, each one of them needs to be looked at separately and, and independently. And that's, uh, you know, that's a challenge, obviously. Perhaps we might spend the last few minutes, I'm, so, I'm sorry to ask uh, to direct the conversation, Sam. Yeah, no. Just talking about about the immunology of this virus, because it's it's what we're learning is really something we've never seen before. So even at the immunological level, this virus seems to be doing things that, it, that, is, that are not normal. And, and, and there's a lot of science around this. The, the first thing I, that, that I should say is, is that when you look at people who have generated antibodies against the virus, this is obviously people who have gotten infected, up to one-third of people, this is paper work done at the Rockefeller University, Up to one third of people generate very low titer antibodies, and we don't know why. And we don't know if those people can get reinfected uh, if they and you know if they have kind of quasi immune response. So we don't know. We do know that that there are some people with pre-existing T cells against. So not B cells. B cells are the ones that make antibodies. T cells are you know basically more sort of gumshoe detectives. They go cell to cell to cell surveying. For responses. So the T cell response is also very weird. First of all, some people already seem to have pre-existing T cells against SARS-CoV-2. And that's probably because they've been infected by other coronaviruses, beta coronaviruses, and they which share some genetic similarities. We don't know. So that's a big number. It's 40% of people that that have been tested so far have T cells against SARS-CoV-2 even having never seen this virus before in their lifetimes. So right. it's a big mystery, and we don't know how these people react. The third mystery is that there's a third wing of the immune system called the innate immune system. So this is these are not B and T cells which react to a virus and adapt to the virus and make antibodies or can kill the virus-infected T cells, and they're specific for a virus. The innate immune system is a very ancient part of the immune system And its job is to be the first responder. So it includes cells like macrophages, monocytes, dendritic cells. These are cells that are first responders, but they have no ability to adapt to the virus. They have no ability to have memory, although there's maybe some memory that's emerging, but they have no ability to have any memory against the virus. So these innate cells are actually, we're now finding out that one of the most peculiar things about this virus is that the innate system undergoes a profound dysfunction in the case of this virus and this profound dysfunction is is a is a dysfunction that probably is responsible for the diffuse pneumonias that are a part of the part of these you know the lethal deadly symptoms of the virus mm-hmm. and there is a a picture emerging that there are really two phases which fail just like there are multiple phases of sort of governance and politics and, and production that failed, there are two phases in the body that fail, potentially, in our response to the virus. The first phase is that some people don't produce a substance called interferon, type 1 interferon, and those people tend to have severe disease. This is from a very large study in Paris and from some genetic studies that have been done recently. It's very unusual. Most viruses raise a very brisk interferon response. But for some reason that we don't fully understand, some humans don't seem to be able to raise a brisk type 1 interferon response or even a gamma interferon response to this virus. And we think that those people essentially never control their viremia, the amount of virus that they have in their body, and they progress to severe disease. Mm. And then, and this is what's surprising and interesting, there's a separate group of people, it seems, who have a phenomenon that scientists have called immunological misfiring. So they may be able to control the virus initially, but for some reason, their innate immune cells, again, these macrophages, monocytes, etc., start firing off a kind of, you know, you could call it a trigger-happy system of inflammation, and it doesn't seem to stop. And those patients also have a very severe variant of the disease. Mm. And how to resolve these two populations is an open question. Are they overlapping? Does one lead to the other? Are they two distinct populations? Should there be two distinct, therefore, therapies against them? We just don't know. So much like there is there is a kind of failure across multiple axes in the, as I said, in the political and governance space. It seems to be there's a failure in multiple axes in the physiology of the virus. And one of the humbling things as an immunologist is to realize that really it's been a century of immunology. And yet, and we know so much about immunology. We know about how viruses infect cells. We know what, you know, how antibodies are made, how antibodies protect, et cetera. But we still don't understand some very fundamental features of immunology.
0: And how concerned are you that even apparently mild cases of COVID are, in fact, significant with respect to a person's long-term health, which is to say that we we don't know what the virus is ultimately doing in a person's body, and and it seems now that it's not even principally a a respiratory problem in many people. It's much more a, a blood vessel issue, or, I mean, it seems like it can go more or less anywhere. I feel like in, in the public perception here, a picture of this disease has really kind of solidified, which is a small percentage of people, very small percentage of people, you know, disproportionately older and disproportionately male die from this awful thing. But in, in most people it's a very mild illness and appropriately likened to a flu. And if you get the mild version uh, you're basically free and clear and hopefully you've got some immunity to it and in some alternate universe yeah. we could just kind of ride our way to herd immunity and be none the worse for wear what's your view of that
1: well so i'm i have very i would say i would i have some relatively strong views about that but i think we don't know and and in this case humility should precede anything else i think we now know that some people even with mild disease are suffering longer term consequences these include inflammatory consequences that we don't fully understand. So they include systemic inflammatory con- consequences such as, you know, changes in the in, in blood vessels, changes in blood clotting. One of the symptoms of at least severe disease is is blood clotting. And we don't fully understand why, although again the inflammatory response is probably responsible. There's an article yesterday. If you've been anyone who's been keeping up with the literature, that shows that there are micro vessel and micro structural changes in the brain of patients, particularly with among severe patients. There are children who uh, apparently had no disease, a small numbers, who get a, a blood vessel disease, inflammatory autoimmune disease called, which is very similar to Kawasaki's disease. And Kawasaki's mm. disease is no joke. Um, it is a you know it can have many many long term consequences so i'm extremely concerned that people are saying oh gosh this is just a mild version of the flu because we just don't know we just, enough time has not passed and there may be and i have no idea i should say that and no one has any idea that there may be a spectrum of people who had mild disease and maybe sort of in their middle ages let's say 50s to 60s and have probably another 20 30 years to live who actually experienced vascular damage because it's you know usually for all these viral diseases, it's not one. It's not once You know, it's just not. It, you know, it's not like there's one end of the spectrum, and then there's another end. You know, it's not like bi- It's not a binary phenomenon. There's a continuum, and so some people might have had medium to severe disease. You know, gotten a pneumonia, bad cough, recovered, etc. Those are the patients I would be most concerned about because we just don't know what the long term sequelae of this are, and we we'll we'll find out. It'll take us probably at least a decade to find out.
0: Mm. Okay, so finally, Sid, and I know your time is short here, so feel free to race through your answer here, but I, I want your picture of the future. You give me, so I'm, I can imagine that we're attacking this on a few different fronts and victory will be achieved on each of these fronts, probably sequentially. So you have the prospect of passive antibody treatment, which might be helpful. Then there's, you know, antiviral treatment that I'm sure people are busily developing and then there's the much uh, hoped for vaccine which one hopes will eventually arrive and and work what's your sense of the timeline there how hopeful are you that it's as short as the most sanguine people have have advertised and at what point do you think we get back to something resembling truly normal life or do we ever i mean do you think we're going to be wearing masks for the rest of our lives because our sense of what a prudent norm around public health has fully changed or
1: well I have several let me let me answer yeah. that question go in for. in several ways. First of all, I think the the resumption of normalcy will only happen when there's a resumption of normal health. Pretending that this is going to go away as the president did and others did is just not going to work. So so what do we need to do? So first of all we need we are doing the best we can on the vaccine front. I believe that this is a vaccinable disease. It may not protect everyone The FDA has set a bar of about 50% protection, which I think is reasonable. That will get us a lot. So, but remember, vaccines. Just having a vaccine isn't enough. You have to vaccinate people. You have to convince the anti-vaxxers, of which there are many and growing, that a vaccine is the only way to really protect yourself. And I think this is a vaccinable disease. And and especially, I would tell the anti-vaxxers that beware of this idea, which we just talked about, that this is just a mild flu and it'll go away the long-term sequelae might be terrible. And so you may contract the disease and you may think that you're totally going to be fine. But remember that the, the long-term sequelae of the disease may be really terrible. So I think that the most important thing is not just to make a vaccine, but to be able to distribute that vaccine, to produce it at scale and to vaccinate people. There may be many vaccines and how to judge them against each other is also a complicated question. Mm. We, we really don't know. The second thing that it's shown us is that the public health surveillance system around the world, the global public health surveillance system, needs to be be upped. This is not the time to withdraw from the WHO. It's the time to strengthen what the WHO and other organizations can do. And there should be consistent and constant surveillance. We are now, what we have learned is that, you know, several trillion dollar economies came to a grinding halt and you know let let aside the, the 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 horrible tragedy the damnation of dying alone in a hospital bed let that tragedy aside which we can't let aside but 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 i'm just saying as well you know the joblessness the homelessness the disproportionate the fact that it's disproportionately affected african americans and hispanic populations in the united states and poor and vulnerable populations around the world so A a pandemic surveillance system around the world is a global responsibility. And if it means that, you know, there will be times when there'll be other pandemics like this and we'll have to go back to masking, quarantining, and isolation. But the first step right now, I think, is to pay attention to making sure that the vaccine comes along. Until then, you know, I think people should be masked, distanced. I am, you know, I sat, I sat and thought really hard about school openings and i am not convinced that we should be we will be able to safely open schools the way things are going right i mean i saw a vid- video today and you may have seen this too of a school in georgia where you know opening happened and you know there were all these policies in place no one to enforce them hundreds of students walking around essentially no social distancing and less than 50% wearing masks yeah then these are not kids these are you know teenagers so so i'm not sanguine that any of this is going to end until we sort of limp our way towards you know two hundred thousand odd deaths, and the rest of the people you know with some behavioral change and 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 isolation and some some immunity are able to you know get back to some normalcy the the somewhat good news I suppose is that the the in the second wave that's hit the United States, the slope of the second wave happens to be less than the slope of the first wave if you see what i mean. Yeah. Uh, again i would encourage people to look at it. And so i'm hoping that the total number of deaths and th- that slope begins to turn the corner and and begins to halt hopefully by let's say december or january and then the next major step is you know getting the vaccine ready. I i think that there's a chance that we will have at least a workable vaccine by january or february. I cannot tell you, you know, given what's going on in the anti-vaxxer movement and and others, I just can't tell you whether it'll pe- whether people will actually take the vaccine or not. Mm. That would be an immense disappointment because that would just set us up for a second failure.
0: All right. So I, I have one more question on that front. So I mean, it does seem like a a rational concern given how inept we have been on so many fronts that. There'll be a concern that many people have who are, you know, by no means anti-vaxxers traditionally. They'll be concerned that this has been rushed to market for, you know, obvious reasons and that some, you know, safety step may have been skirted and, and therefore people will feel like, okay, I've been locked down forever here. I'm, I'm willing to stay locked down for a, a while longer yet and wait for, you know, some millions of people to take this vaccine before I do.
1: Yeah, so it's the first mover. It's the first mover problem, right? I think I think that vul, people who are vulnerable. I mean, I think there's going to be the va- the vaccine distribution should be skewed towards vulnerable people. There've been various attempts to try to do this to make a lottery, but make it a weighted lottery so that you can have you know the people who are vulnerable to take the vaccine first. And I think they the fda and international agencies have been quite clear that they are not willing to sacrifice or or pull back on the safety standards safety is first even beyond efficacy safety is right. first in vaccination so i generally believe that we will not get an unsafe vaccine i think that it will be as fast as we can possibly go but i i do generally believe that we will not get an unsafe vaccine and again you know, the protecting the vulnerable population is probably going to be the first step. People who are unwilling to take the vaccine for, you know, various reasons, ranging from, you know, risk averseness to conspiracy theories to the anti-vaxxers, I think those people, you know, I think they will sort of really need to figure out or think about watching the vaccine sort of take hold in, in populations and mentally make up their own mind, you know, is, it, is two months safe? Is three months safe? When they think that they will be able to safely think that they might be able to take the vaccine, I mean that would be the most rational approach. But uh, you know, nothing, everything has been has defied reason here. Mm. Sam, I know you're a big proponent of reason. This has been I a try to be a, a collapse collapse of reason in in every front.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Sid, it's it's always great to get your rational voice on the program to speak about these issues, and um, I look forward to having. The true postmortem conversation when all of this is behind us and uh, there's nothing but blue sky and, and masks are a distant memory and we can figure out what went wrong and how not to repeat the fiasco. But uh, it's very encouraging to know that you're involved in the conversations that will be steering future policy here. And uh, I just want you to um, take care of yourself and uh, don't stop.
1: Vice versa. Thank you very much, Sam, and, and great listening to your podcasts. It's been a it's been a private pleasure to be able to listen to these uh, during the lockdown. So nice. keep that working. Nice.